Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Monday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. Over the last few podcasts, I've raised a question. A question about Jesus' self-identity. What did Jesus know about himself and about his mission? And when did he know it? And I would contend that being fully God and fully human, that Jesus could not have had full knowledge of his self-identity from the very start. Because to be fully human, we struggle with that very question. And Jesus had to struggle with everything that we had to struggle with and that we have to struggle with. I think there was a process, an ongoing process in Jesus' life of self-discovery. And we found that with the murder of John the Baptist, that was a crisis in the life of Christ. With the murder of John, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee to the east side, the Golan Heights side, and spent the night in intense prayer. Now, we don't know what he prayed. We don't know what he said. But when he came off that mountain, I think he had a very clear idea of his full self-identity and his full mission. He came off that mountain, went back to Capernaum, and encountered the religious leaders who had come up from Jerusalem, who criticized him for, well, his disciples were walking through a field were picking heads of grain on the Sabbath. And your disciples ate with unwashed hands. Just stupid stuff. And Jesus had had it. He threw up his hands and he walked away. He went north toward Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon are in modern-day Lebanon. Where was Jesus headed? I think, and I can't prove it, but I suspect that Jesus had said, I am done with all of this, and he was heading north. And he would have kept going, except he encountered the Canaanite woman who begged him for help. And he said, I've only come for the lost sheep of Israel. And he called her a dog. A great insult. But rather than come back and slap him, she said that even dogs eat the scraps under the master's table. And that really took him aback. He commended her faith. And then he turned around and went back to the Sea of Galilee. Wherever he was headed, he had changed his mind and was going back. So he got back, and sure enough, there were the religious leaders. We saw in Matthew chapter 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to him and tested him by asking a sign from heaven. Well, he said to his disciples, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. These guys are bad news. These guys are like yeast that has rotted a loaf of bread. Be on your guard. And then he took his disciples and headed back north, this time deliberately to Caesarea Philippi. And what was Caesarea Philippi? 53 miles north of Capernaum? The temple of the god Pan. The god Pan. You know about him from mythology. He was 
the upper half a man, the lower half a goat. And when you see images of the god Pan, he has an enormous phallus. He's the god of the good time. We get the word pandemonium and panic from his name. That's where he took them. And I've taken our pilgrims to Israel, to Caesarea Philippi, every trip we make for this particular episode. Jesus got his disciples up there to Caesarea Philippi. And he said, right there within sight of the temple of the god Pan, who do people say I am? Now that's what he's been struggling with. Who am I fully and what am I to do? Well, now he knows. And he asked his disciples, who do the people say I, the Son of Man, is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Others say the prophet Elijah. Elijah, who at the end of Malachi, we read, will return and usher in the Messiah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He, he's, people say, you're like one of the great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And he said to them, but what about you? And that word you in the Greek is plural. He's addressing the disciples. Who do you, plural, say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, Peter hit the nail right on the head. That was Jesus' full identity, the full self-knowledge that he now acquired. And Jesus replied to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Peter validates Jesus' self-identity, the conclusion that he had come to fully during that night on the mountain. So blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Peter, who spoke on behalf of the group, he's the leader of the group, and Jesus continues, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. You, Peter, you the rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Peter will be a key person in the emerging church. Now, I understand that there is a difference of opinion here on the, these verses. A Roman Catholic would say that Peter is the rock on whom Jesus built the church, and Peter was the leader of that church, and the successors of Peter continued being the leader of that church all the way up until Pope Francis of today. Protestants will say, no, no, no. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the grammatical question is, the word this, does this refer to the person of Peter? You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church? 
Or does this refer to Peter's confession of faith that he made a few verses earlier? It's a legitimate argument and one that we can't prove grammatically because this is ambiguous. We don't know if it points to Peter or to Peter's confession of faith. As a Roman Catholic, I am perfectly happy pointing it to Peter himself. But I also appreciate and understand the Protestant position that this refers to Peter's confession of faith. It's something we disagree upon and will continue to disagree upon, but it's not something that should separate us within the body of Christ. I will give you, now this you, singular, is Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Peter will play that key role. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone the fullness of his identity at this time. So from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. So Jesus not only knows the fullness of his identity, but the fullness of his mission. Well, Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But with this, Peter took him aside and rebuked him. He said, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I understand that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. But what you've just said, that we are going to Jerusalem, you'll be arrested, tried, sentenced to death, crucified, and then raised? No, this is not going to happen. And Jesus turned on Peter and, with a fiery look in his eyes, said, Get behind me, Satan, Satan, the adversary. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter, the last thing I need is for you undermining what I just said in front of the other disciples and, indeed, creating doubt in my mind. No. I know exactly who I am or what I have to do. So get behind me. Either lead, follow, or get out of the way. And then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, would follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. So what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man, I. The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, that is an important verse. Some of you among the twelve will not taste death 
before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It will be imminent within your lifetime. Now, another really interesting thing happens. They continue north. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, the inner, inner circle, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So they travel for six days. And Peter, James, and John, James and John are Jesus' cousins, the very inner circle, he took them up a high mountain. Now, traditionally, that high mountain is Mount Tabor in the Jezreel Valley, the Mount of Transfiguration. And I have to say, there is a very beautiful Franciscan church at the top of Mount Tabor. But if you've been to Israel with me or with anyone else, and we drive through the Jezreel Valley, Mount Tabor is not a high mountain. The Jezreel Valley is flat. Mount Tabor is just a hill. In fact, you can walk all the way to the top in a fairly short time. And Jesus would not have taken his disciples all the way back to the Jezreel Valley and then back up to Capernaum and then to Jerusalem, which is what we'll see happen. I would argue, and I have both in class and online, that that high mountain was Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, about a six-day walk north. Mount Hermon is not a single mountain, but about a 50-mile-long mountain range, snow-capped most of the year, even during the summer. There's a ski resort on the Israeli portion of Mount Hermon. In fact, in Israel, you can go skiing in the morning and then come down to the Sea of Galilee and go swimming in the afternoon. Mount Hermon. Why Mount Hermon? Well, again, it's the highest mountain in that whole region. It's within sight of Caesarea Philippi. On a clear day, you can see it. And it's the source of water for the land of Israel. Three major runoff streams come off Mount Hermon and form the upper Jordan River, which flows into the Sea of Galilee, which then flows down south on the lower Jordan River into the Dead Sea. It's the fresh water source, the source of life for this very land. So the symbolism fits very nicely with Mount Hermon. Now, I, again, think Mount Tabor, and particularly the Franciscan Church on the top of Mount Tabor, is a lovely place to remember the Transfiguration. But the actual site, I think, is Mount Hermon, and I'm going to stick with that. So he took Peter, James, and John all the way up on the high mountain, and there he was transfigured before them. The word is metamorphosized. Not he just got shiny and bright. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became as white as light. He's not just getting shiny and bright. He is metamorphosized, like caterpillar to butterfly. Peter, James, and John, the other disciples, all those who met him around the shores of the Sea of Galilee, 
saw Jesus in his full humanity. But now, with Peter's confession of faith, now on the Mount of Transfiguration, his inner, inner circle has the enormous blessing and privilege to see him transfigured in his full divinity. That is staggering. And it's something that Peter will never forget, that's for sure. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became as white as light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Moses, the one through whom God gave the law, and Elijah, one of the great prophets, the one that would precede the coming of the Messiah at the end of Malachi. Moses and Elijah are speaking with Jesus. Peter, James, and John are dumbfounded. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If, if, if you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But while he was speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Do you see what happened here? Peter's confession of faith at Caesarea Philippi. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, has just been validated by God the Father himself in the presence of two credible witnesses, Moses and Elijah, as required in the book of Deuteronomy. Any testimony requires two credible witnesses. And you can't get more credible than Moses and Elijah. So God the Father, in the presence of two credible witnesses, the most credible, validates Peter's confession of faith. Well, the disciples heard this. They fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. The cloud had cleared, Moses and Elijah were gone, and it's just Jesus and the three of them. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what that would have been like? Oh my gosh. Peter never, never forgot it. In fact, if we turn over to 2 Peter, the last letter that Peter writes at the time, He's in prison in Rome, about to be executed. Peter remembers this vividly. And he says, in prison, in Rome, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I'll soon be putting it aside. Peter's execution has already been scheduled. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Now look, he says, we, me, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and the others, 
did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were there. We saw it. We were eyewitnesses to his entire public ministry. And me, James, and John, we were eyewitnesses at his transfiguration, seeing him in his full divinity. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from a majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves, me, James, and John, heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. So make no mistake, we didn't invent these stories. We were there. And we were present when God the Father validated my confession of faith in the presence of Moses and Elijah. So as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Don't get ahead of yourself here. We have some serious business to take care of. You can tell everybody all about this when it's concluded. The disciples ask him, well, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes, as we read at the end of Malachi, and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. He's come in the person of John the Baptist, and he's come here at the Mount of Transfiguration to validate Peter's confession of faith. He's already come. They didn't recognize him in the person of John. They've done to him everything they wish. They murdered him. In the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was telling them, talking to them, about John the Baptist. What a scene. You know, every time we travel to Israel and we walk in the footsteps of Jesus, I bring up this this question about Jesus' self-identity. How much did he know and when did he know it? And I truly think, as we work through all three of the Synoptic Gospels, that that quest for self-understanding and mission is at the very heart of what we read during Jesus' public ministry. But now, now we know. Now he knows. And now it's time to get on with things. Now it's time to follow the plan without hesitation. And that brings us right to the end of our podcast for this Monday. I, I think this Peter's Confession of Faith and the Transfiguration is a fabulous section of Scripture. And I hope you enjoy it. I hope you understand it. And it solidifies in your mind and in your heart who Jesus is, and what he's about to do on our behalf. So thank you for being with me. I'll be back again on Wednesday. Blessings to you. It's always good to be here with you. I look forward to it every single week. Please keep me in your prayers if you would, and I'll keep you in mind. Bye-bye now.